All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. And you know what, Rich? Every week we start off and we're like, eh, not a lot going on right now. Not, still got some time to wait. We're kind of there, buddy. We're kind of there. How you doing? I'm good, man. There is officially some stuff there going on. There is stuff. On. There are activities to go to, quotes to be relayed, stories to be reported, and pretty soon balls will be bouncing. It is a good time of year. Let's start. Sure. Orlando, Florida. Markel <laughs> Fultz is shooting now. Yeah. Kidding. How how happy were you? And look, I, I'm rooting for the kid. I really am. But how happy were you that you didn't have to have a take on the video posted the other day? I was ecstatic. Ecstatic. Yeah. It, it did feel a little weird that you didn't have to have a take on it. It but, did. Uh, uh, I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Good luck to Markel, too. I don't wish any ill will on him. I just don't. We have our own non-shooting point card whose Instagram videos we have to cover. And that was a part of this week's lunch with head coach Brett Brown. So let's pivot over to that. You know, we had a couple of events this week. We had Brett Brown had a coaches clinic, an annual coaches clinic that he does every year. And then after, you know, on Wednesday, we had a lunch with Brett Brown that he does every year as well. It's his sort of way to have a more informal sort of conversation with the media and then also be allowed to skirt his his media day responsibilities, the more formal version, which I think he probably doesn't love all that much. So it works out for all of us involved. We get some decent food and we get to ask him the questions that we want. Actually, this year, I would say that food was better than decent. I think this was one of their their better years in terms of, uh, you know, where they went and the food that we were served. So I'm very happy about that. That will certainly buy them some positive coverage. Sure. Some chicken, some salmon. I uh, th- That clinic, by the way. I, that's an underrated cool thing that he does. Uh, you know, he talks a lot about how he views himself not just as the Sixers head coach, but also someone, you know, who's part of the Philadelphia basketball community. And during the season, I guess there's only so much he can do besides coach his team and, and get, uh, a lot of pressure, uh, from doing that. Uh, I know he's got a son who's heading into high school now. I would imagine he'll show up at those games, but that's all you can really do. But before the season starts, he puts on a free clinic and he actually shows the Sixers plays and explains them like the whys, what they're trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a high school coach to get into this thing. You could be coaching your, your 10 year old daughter or son's YMCA team and just trying to learn more about hoops and they'll let you in. Yep. Uh, and I don't think that happens a lot in other markets. So this is where we, we position our guys when we push the ball. This is what we're doing on the second side. He gets into. Pretty decent detail, which you covered over the, over at theathletic.com slash Philly this week. But yeah, he gets, he's a little more forthright than I would have maybe expected. Yeah. And, and again, it's, you know, it's not exactly like football in, in basketball. They've been running the same thing for years. There's a, a sense in basketball where you can know what we run. You, you are going to know what we run, but you also have to stop it as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a cool event. I, I would say if you have not gone to that event in the past, I would highly recommend it next year, provided Brett is still the coach. <laughs> that is something you can never take for granted. Brett sort of joked about that at his lunch the other day, saying that he has been on the hot seat every year he's been here. Uh, and it's just sort of the nature of the business, which it is. But I certainly feel like this season is more so than ever. And, you know, we sort of asked him about that at various points. During the lunch, and he downplayed it as you would expect, but it doesn't feel like 
there's almost no scenario where it's like, hey, good season, didn't quite get to where you want to go, but good luck next year. It's like he either proved that he can get them to an NBA Finals, or it feels like he's gone. And there, I mean, look, a lot can happen between now and then. They're certainly not going to admit to that now, but that certainly feels like the vibe we're getting, which creates some, uh, you know, some, some tension there. Yeah. Heading into the season. Yeah. It certainly feels that way to me. Even, even if there's more kind of a positive vibe right now, when, uh, when it starts getting real, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. It, look, uh, maybe, maybe he gets the conference finals. They put up a good fight. Yeah. You bring him back. I'm, I'm certainly not saying like it's an NBA finals or bust. But it does feel like he's going to have to really show something this year. Or, uh, you know, we'll see. How about when he was asked about feeling pressure? He said, well, I, I know that the first time when it's going to be a low content day that uh, people will start writing Brett Brown is on the hot seat. He actually <laughs> said low content day. Yes. So yep. uh, he certainly reads some stuff. He, he He certainly likes to pretend that he doesn't. But uh, he is certainly, at the very least, given snippets. Do you remember that the, interesting the only time he revealed it to us was uh he got mad at something I wrote because it was all Mike's fault because Mike had a stat I used in a piece. I think it was I think it was after the first oh, game last Embiid, year. Embiid, like how lo- how much Embiid ran or something like that. Yep, they got destroyed by Boston that first game, and Mike tweeted out a stat that I don't know. I, I kind of liked maybe it maybe it wasn't smart because uh <laughs> the next day you know it was the, I think. He was guarding Tatum to start the game, and I wrote something along the lines of, uh, you know, he ran X miles. And the next day, Brett's just doing an availability, and he's like, you know, I read something online about the miles he ran, and that's just dumb. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and by the way, though, like by the end of the season, Joel Embiid was worn out and overused from in the beginning portion of the season, and that probably wasn't to do with how many miles he ran in a game. It was probably more they didn't sit enough games and the number of minutes that he played. But I think the concern was fair for sure. Yeah. And I'm just kind of standing there next to him awkwardly uh, because he really didn't, I, I don't think he knew I wrote it. I think he kind of just read it. And uh yeah, so I guess the lesson is that fire Brett is okay. Joel Embiid ran an extra third of a mile. That's, that's no good though. <laughs> well, on those low content days, we'll talk about those miles run anyway. So I guess moving on to the big picture discussions from the lunch, which certainly were not anything about Brett Brown's job security or about Joel Embiid's miles run, although a little bit about load management, only a little bit though. What would you say was the biggest takeaway you had from that lunch? You know, it, it was different than most years. There, there weren't really, you know, we already talked about Fultz and, and those jumpers in Orlando and there just weren't as many what I would call Sixers issues. No, no, there weren't. I mean, think back to last year. You had Markel Fultz starting. You had the questions about his jump shot and his summer, which were basically kept under secrecy the entire summer. You had you didn't have a GM yet, and you had that hiring process of which Brett was very much involved in. And then you go back, you know, years before that, two years before that specifically, and you had. You know, Joel Embiid had never played a game. He was about to make his NBA debut. I think that was probably the first time we heard Shaq with soccer feet when he used to describe Joel and, and Brett's used it a bunch since then, including at this year's lunch. So you've always had a lot of intrigue. You know, I think two years ago or three years ago, you had Brian Colangelo sort of making his, he, he was at the one lunch 
So you had some intrigue there. There weren't like the way you put it is correct. There weren't nearly as many Sixers issues at this year's lunch. The Sixers had a GM at this lunch. Uh, he wasn't there, but they had one, which was not the case last year, uh, until maybe a couple hours afterwards, at least officially. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think the, the one, the issue that had the most curiosity was Ben Simmons and his jump shot. And even then, I don't think we got into it until about a half hour, uh, into the, into the lunch because Frankly, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a matter of, you know, this guy is, is barely playable. It's, it's the difference between a good and a great player, essentially. And, uh, so you, you wrote about that today on, on theathletic.com. What do you make, I guess, in general of everything that Brett said about Ben Summer? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think by and large, he still couches everything, but with, the way he used to always phrase it was shooting will not define who Ben Simmons is. I've never disagreed with him more about something. No, I mean, he, he, he likes to downplay his weaknesses and play up his strengths, which as a leader in a clubhouse, I get. Not the only one too. Reddick would do that all the time too. And I, yeah, sure. You just look at him like, all right, but, but really it will. And he had a touch of that this year, but certainly he was more forceful in laying out expectations, sort of like a baseline of expectations of what he expected, not only hoped for, but almost expected of Ben as a jump shooter. And that's sort of like an expectation that has never really been set for him. Um, you know, if, first of all, he said, for me, it starts here. It's a willingness to shoot, which I think we all sort of agree with. You know, that is the first step into his evolution as a shooter. Uh, he said, with Ben, we're not going to hunt threes, but when they're available, I want him to shoot them. He talked about when he's off ball, he's not going to put him in the dunker spot which is where he spent a lot of the playoff series against Toronto in. He's going to try to move him out to the corner three-point line and encourage him to shoot those open shots, which was interesting because he's never really put Ben in the corner because, I mean, why would you? It's just, it's a waste of space. Uh, you're not, nobody's going to respect him out there. So the fact that he is going to, you know, he has that sort of, and it's tough because sometimes Brett will show confidence more as a motivational tool than him actually being confident. Like I'd love to be able to say, Oh, this is proof that Brett is confident that Ben Simmons will make corner three pointers. I mean, he, he well, talks, he talks all the time about how he judges poor three, three point shooters as, all right, you need to be able to make four of 10 of those or I'm not letting you shoot those. And I think he, he generally ascribes to that philosophy. Right. But he, uh, and going back to the confidence thing, he also expressed confidence in Markel and put him in the starting lineup, which a lot of that was to, generate confidence more than an expression of confidence so you know you wonder if this starts off where ben doesn't shoot a three a corner three for the first two weeks of the season does that change well he better, he better shoot him? one he, i mean it, it's really sounding like and look brett said all the right things about he's had a wonderful summer like he looks at his form and he sees it's improved and he's coming to the gym here and their 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 um workouts that they've had their informal workouts the voluntary workouts that they've been having and he, he, he sees a willingness to shoot and a confidence. And, you know, he talked about Ben and he, he looks like he wanted to come back and show that he's put in the work and he's prideful and he said all the right things. We'll see. I mean, I, I, I hate to go back to that, but it's great that Brett is thinking about what he's going to do when Ben shoots. It's great that, Be that Brett is expressing confidence that Ben will shoot. 
but we still sort of get back. And look, we're only a couple days away now, so it's really easy to do this. We're still kind of at the point where it's like, okay, well, let me see it. Let's see. The uh, the idea he said of the willingness to shoot, we're holding him to that this year. I look, oh, yeah. even if he hits the side of the backboard on a corner three, we gotta see it a couple times, man, because he's gonna be wide open. And it's uh, I thought it was uh, it was pretty funny after a, a whole off season of of Brett hearing and and reading dunker spot, dunker spot, dunker spot. He goes right out and volunteers that I'm sticking him in the corner, and I mean, those are going to be wide open shots, man. Can you imagine, let's say, Tobias or Richardson coming off a pick and roll with a head of steam? And then Ben's defender is just going to be planted right under the rim and they'll kick it out to him and he'll have all day to study that thing. So, uh, that'll be fun. I, uh, but and to I, your point, he's going to like, he's going to have to make more than three out of 10 to really make them stop helping off of Tobias. Like he's, it's not just going to be enough to take those threes. Like we talk about willingness a lot and that's the first step, but it's not really going to change defensive behavior until he starts making them at a decent, at a respectable clip. Maybe that's 33% from the corner. Maybe that's 35%, but he's like, if he makes two out of 10, you're not going to change how a defense reacts. No. Um, but you know, we, we will, uh, We'll get a look at that. They they will be. I I do know though. Right away, they're going to be wide open. The, the people are going to be daring him to shoot those. So you, you got to fire that him. The Chris Johnson videos aren't enough to make them help out. Maybe you know. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll leave Joel in the post single covered so we can go help out on that. Uh, those those Ben Simmons threes. Yeah, it might take a little more than that. He I think that he he had an interview with the AP. I think. Uh, where where he talked Ben did I, I don't know where this was set up but uh where he talked about where he needs to be willing to to shoot more and you know I I, I do think there's a chance it's pretty ugly to start but it, it's just it's so important to just have a baseline of where they're working from and, and just kind of see how it looks so uh yeah so we, again like you said we got to see it but uh said all the right things and. It will be, uh, it will be pretty interesting for a team that is going to be starved for space, trying to create a little more with a guy who has never shot a three, uh, or never made a three, excuse me, shot a couple, uh, standing in the corner. Yeah. And I mean, it'll, it's a, it's a really interesting study because on the one hand, like, I think we all, we're all in the same camp where we want to see it. We think being willing to take it is the first step, but none of us really expect it to be all that efficient of a shot. So you've got a team. Who's a built around a post player and a non-shooting point guard? Who's also expected to compete for a a trip to the championship, the NBA Finals, and a coach whose job may depend on it? How long can you keep shooting just so you can show the confidence to shoot? Like I, I can hear Ben Dietrich right now screaming in the background, "It's a bad shot," and he's not wrong, but he needs that first step in order to for it to become a good shot, and. I, I just, I hope, here's I just hope it becomes an average shot. I'm so sick of a guy who is so good at literally everything else. We spend 85% of the time yeah. talking about this. And I, it's not, by the way, and I don't think it's a mistake that we're talking about it 85% no. of the time because it is very important. But, be, but I'm sick real... of it because he's so good at everything else yes. and he's fun to watch and all that good stuff. But yeah. It would be real tough to watch the last two second rounds of the playoffs 
and then also come out and say, oh, that shot, that shot doesn't matter. Yes, it does. It matters for Ben's impact. It matters for Ben's own personal scoring. It matters for the team's ability to execute. There's just, when you get into the final, you know, four, eight teams in a the league, they tend to be equipped to handle a guy like Ben and to be able to make the most of his deficiencies. And they need, that deficiency needs to just not be quite as pronounced. And, uh, one other thing, when did, when did, you know, it's been the dunker spot for a long time, but when did we officially move off of the Birdman zone? Like, can we go back to that? I, I, I like I, that reference. I, I like that one better, but it's, th- that's more of a Sixer specific one because Brett basically names everything on the court. I mean, I, I would love, Maybe we, I mean, I already kind of do a series on this with the Sixers dictionary, but I bet you he has named whether it's a place on the court, a specific action. Nashing. Uh, yeah. He's got gnashing. He's got mashing. He's got, uh, you know, Dirk coverage on defense. He's got, uh, the Malone line. It's, uh, he's got a lot of stuff. I, I agree. I do like the Birdman zone, but, uh, you have to be a student. You can't just be a player. You have to be a student of NBA history to understand what Brett is saying. Yeah. And, uh, I think, you know, it's funny because Birdman was such an effective player for the Heat as recently as, I mean, when did they win the title? 2013 was their last one. So, you know, obviously they had LeBron and Bosch and Wade that, that's going to be, uh, helps. it's going to be a pretty good team regardless, but they had a guy who was not as good as Ben Simmons at anything. And he was effective just because he could dunk from the same spot where we agonize Ben Simmons is standing for a whole playoff series. So, All right, let's take a real quick break from the podcast, talk about this week's sponsor, betonline.ag. The football season is back, and now you can get into the game with our exclusive sports betting partners, betonline.ag. Sign up today to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and make your bets on your favorite professional or college team. Every spread, every total, every winner or loser, straight bet, parlay, or tease your way through this season. Will Mahomes throw for 56 touchdowns? Can the Pats go undefeated? Bet on all of this with the fastest odds, updates, and payouts with our new sportsbook partners, betonline.ag. Head on over to betonline.ag or use your mobile device to join today and use promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus. Once again, that's promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus. Get into all the action today with betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. And now back to the show. All right, moving off of Ben and his jump shot, because we will get a first-hand look at that pretty soon. I would say my my second main takeaway would have been pick-and-roll defense. And it sort of piggybacks off of the coaches' clinic. You know, Ime Udoku sort of came out, and he was showing a, a, a bunch of different middle pick-and-roll coverages. And he gets out, and he's showing, you know, blitzing and trapping a pick-and-roll. And somebody in the stands asks, well, when would you want to, you know, sort of use a trap or a blitz? <laughs> and he's like, well, when Kemba's dropping 60 on you, that's that's a pretty good time to to bring that out. And he sort of, he didn't say it exactly like that. He, but he directly referenced Kemba dropping 60 on the Sixers as a time. And then Brett came out. I don't have the exact quote, but it was basically about turning people over. And, you know, might they get a little more aggressive in their pick and roll coverage? And it was basically like, we might. And maybe you have the exact quote because you wrote about it today. But it certainly sounds like they're not going to be, they're going to be a little, they're going to look for opportunities to be aggressive a little bit more and to change up their defensive scheme 
And it's probably, it's probably a little bit easier now that they sort of have their team set and they're not changing it in November, or at least we, we don't expect them to. And they're not going to change it then again in February and drastically both times, by the way. So it's probably easier to, you know, sort of mix and match, match like responsibilities and, and, and philosophies. But it sounds like they're going to be a little more aggressive on the perimeter. And it's personnel driven too. Their defensive personnel has gotten better. So I think the exact, or here's the exact quote that was in my piece. Cause I, I asked him, I was like, all right, look, just tell me all this length you have on the defensive end. Where specifically do you see it translating? And he volunteers this, turning people over. And so we can get in a, okay, how there's going to be a premium placed on deflections. Editor's note, RIP cuff. I wish you were still here. <laughs> Uh, and then he goes, might we blitz more because we have the ability to rotate behind it because we just cover so much ground? Might we get into more passing lanes? Might I be a little bit more tolerant if we foul some? That's where my head is at. So basically he's, he's volunteering. We're going to be a lot more aggressive and that's exciting to me. I think Yudoka said similar things when we had him at a, in a scrum after that, that coaching clinic. Uh, one of my, weak areas last season was when the Sixers were struggling defensively against uh middle pick and rolls in particular. People in, in the comments would, would ask me, well, what, what are other teams doing differently? And I didn't really have a good answer for, for them. And part of that was on me. I, I, that's a goal for me this year to kind of pay attention to how other teams play defense a little better. But I think in general, for the most part, teams play the same way on, on a middle pick and roll, for example, they, they go over the screen with their guard. They drop their big guy, yep. try to play two-on-two, stay out of rotations, force mid-range jumpers, all that good stuff. So This is all very cyclical, this uh, philosophy behind it. Like a couple of years ago, with you know, especially with – Miami seems like the one that always comes to mind. But they would willingly awesome. get themselves in rotation because they had the athletes and the size who could recover. So you got the benefit of, of pressuring the ball handler and also the ability to not – allow them to, to make you pay because of that. Yeah, and they were so freaking athletic. Bosch was unbelievable at that, so they were kind of uniquely positioned to do that. You know, there was a team, I think the Milwaukee Bucks under Jason Kidd. They did that as recently as a couple years ago, and God, you see Budenholzer brings just a more conservative style, and he did some other smart things with that defense as well. I don't want to just say that it was just dropping the big man back, but that was a lot of it. And, you know, you look between Kid and the Heat, it, it just, it was completely outdated to play that way. And the Heat were so much fun. They, they forced turnovers, but it, it's also kind of an exhausting way to play too. So yeah, you're right. It is cyclical, but it sounds like the, the coaching staff has looked at all of their size and said, okay, maybe we're not going to play like the Heat, but we're going to try some shit. And, I hope so because that'll be a lot more interesting to watch. Uh, like they're going to trap, they're they're going to rotate, they're going to foul. I mean, we've you know we talked about this a lot over over the past year, but during the season last year, they were I believe they were twenty eighth in turnovers forced. Yep. Which again, it's not that's not the be all end all. I think you look at some of the top defenses in the league, they they get by with being kind of an average turnover forcing team. Some teams do it with turnovers too. There, there, there are a few ways to, to get up to that elite level. But I mean, the Sixers weren't turning over anybody last year. So it's, uh, it, it sounds like they're going to be less conservative and, and that, that'll be, you know, it, 
it, it makes sense too because you have you know with subbing in Horford and Richardson for Butler and Reddick, you have more length. You, you have you know and JJ that's just a guy you can just flat out attack. Butler we thought were, was massively overrated defensively, at least during the season last year. Uh, but you also lose what those guys can do in half court offense. So I think you know it also makes sense to try and force the action a little bit to create more more easy points because for this team I think they're going to be even more of a uh, of a, of something that they're looking for. Honestly, I think the the too long didn't read version of Brett's availability yesterday was we're big as hell and we're going to physically beat the shit out of people. <laughs> yes. And and that was true of both offense and defense. So again, I am uh, I am very excited to see what this looks like defensively. Yeah, it was, I mean, going back to your point about personnel, like I think if you're going to play that aggressive sort of trap on the perimeter style, and I don't, I don't expect the Sixers to come out there and make that sort of their base defense. I you think can't, that's you a, can't anymore. It's, it's no. just, I think that's a change of pace. I think that's a we're getting beat by this guy kind of adjustment. But if you're going to do that even a little bit in the game, you need your rotations have to be on point. Like that's where if you have Jonah Bolden basically taking a, what do I do? What do I do? Well, by that point, you have a roller going in there for a dunk. You need that guy to to crack down and stop that roll man right away, and you need that guy flying out to the corner to recover right away. That has to all be on point, and you have to trust your teammates behind you. And I just don't know if Brett ever had that trust last year. And again, I think part of it is because of the changes midseason, but part of it's because like your big men are, you know, Boban Marjanovic. Jonah, who's too slow to, to really execute anything like that. Jonah Bolden, who's too slow in his decision making to yep. execute anything like that. So I think now bringing in someone like Al, specifically who has that rotations down pat, who you can trust to make those right reads, bringing in someone like Josh Richardson, who has that kind of athleticism, you know, I think it's a little bit easier now to be a little bit more aggressive. And like you said, because of their half court offensive deficiencies are at least not being elite in the half court offense, maybe unless Ben or Joel take a, a, a leap again, which is possible, but or at least half court offensive concerns, you will want to try to generate a few more easy points than you did last year. Because, oh, by the way, and this is something we talked about a lot last year, they were actually really good about turning their deflections and their defensive rebounds into scoring opportunities last year. Just they just didn't get enough much. of them. Yeah. yeah. So you have this guy in Ben Simmons who's an elite transition weapon. You have a half-court offense, which may struggle from time to time, especially against a really good defenses. Turn it over, get out in the break, and, and see what you can generate. I think it makes and, – and by the way, you've got the ultimate eraser defensively in Joel Embiid. So I think it makes sense to dial it up a little bit more. And like we said, you can't do that all game. Teams are going to be too good once they get you into rotation like that. He did at another point in this – um you know, in this, this, this lunch, say that the Holy Grail is, is basically getting teams into rotation. So you don't want to live defensively in a rotation like that. But as a change of pace, you can't let Kemba drop 60 on you either. Yeah. And you're, you're more equipped to do that this year. Yeah. From, from what we've seen, they, they have spent a lot of time, I think as they always do, but because of the, the change in personnel, they have spent a lot of time trying to tweak some of the details of what they're going to do to that personnel. And to me, the the aggressiveness and the rotations is is just a product of saying, we have Al Horford, and this is where he can really help us put out some fires and, and create some more turnovers. Uh, so, 
That'll be good. The uh, what did you think of it, it? Speaking of Bolden and Kylo Quinn, it sounds like yeah, those guys might get a little more of a chance to start the yep. year because Brett was asked basically, "Do you view Al as the backup five? And he said yes, but right away, you know, we we also have to get him to the end of the season, just like Joel. So so right away, maybe he is not the backup five. I think. When the playoffs roll around, he will be. But, uh, he think, he, he was like basically, you'll see him more as the five, I think, automatically during the games where Joe sits. So it sounds like O'Quinn or Bolden, who he, he threw both those guys in, I would, I would imagine O'Quinn is the leader in the clubhouse there, uh, will get a chance to play perhaps more than we thought even in the games where Embiid and Horford are both healthy. Yeah, I think I think O'Quinn is the prohibitive favorite in uh, in in that race. You know, I think this is something that we have talked about a lot throughout the summer. It's like, yes, when the playoffs roll around, we and the, the, the rotation shrink, we expect Al Horford to be the center. But during the season, you know, Al has there have been reporting that Al prefers to play set or power forward. You want to keep Horford fresh. He's not the youngest, as we covered when they signed him. He's not the youngest in the world anymore. So maybe to reduce wear and tear to, to make sure that he is, and Brett said this, like we talk a lot about delivering Joel to the playoffs to April 17th. We have to deliver Al there too. So are you going to try at the beginning of the season, see if you can get some serviceable movements from Kylo Quinn so you don't have to play Horford at that center spot too much, um, at least from the jump. And it sounds like that's going to be the plan going forward. And again, it's sort of something we speculated about because it just makes some logical sense. And like you said on a previous podcast, you're pretty confident that when they want to drop Al at center, they can make that work. Like there's, you don't really need to test that out quite as much as you normally would. So I think it makes some sense. Um, you know, we'll see how those lineups do when that actually plays out. Like if they start hemorrhaging points whenever Joel Embiid sits again, you might see that dialed back, especially against marquee matchups. But I think that is the right way to go. You like, I think. It would, yeah, it would make sense to try it out early. You, you don't, you don't want to, you, you don't want to get to January they, and have to try it. Just, just throw it out there because you have to. Right. And you assume this is why they signed Kylo Quinn because they intended to do this. If you were just looking at a third, you know, a third string center, you could, you could use Jonah Bolden in that role, but you know Joel Embiid's going to sit. You know, you don't want to wear Al Horford down. So you want that extra guy in O'Quinn. I think it makes, I think it makes sense, which is why we spent all summer speculating about it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we, we talked about the defense. That seems like that's all, all good and exciting. So, you know, I, I, I said the, the thing about how they're, you know, going to just try and beat the hell out of people, kind of the old, uh, Chip Kelly, big people beat up little people, except when you're in the pack, pack 10, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but so the offense though, you know, your audience well, Rich. Yes. The, uh, well, they got, they actually got a big win the other night at, uh, at Washington State. So good for Chip. Didn't go defeated this year. And what's his record since leaving the, uh, Eagles? It's, it's really bad, man. Not good. It's really bad. So, but on the offensive end, that, that was something else I, uh, I asked Brett where he basically said, we're going to play bully ball on offense or smash mouth. I forget which one he attributed to offense and defense. He might have actually. It was, I think it was bully ball. Okay. Wasn't it? I don't remember. He might have switched them up a couple times, but. I think they're roughly the same thing. Bully ball on offense, to me, you know, the first thing I think of is... Post well, up, post up, post up. Yeah. Anthony Mason, shoot me now. Yeah. Yeah. And Might he, be he dating myself with that Anthony Mason reference. Probably. I got it. 
uh it's it's not the the 90s Knicks for sure right. but uh i also think like you know and that that was kind of the example that Brett brought up when i said well you you do realize like you would be kind of bucking a trend a little bit I, you, but the way you phrase this you you didn't like you phrased it that way you're like i Right, you know that's not really the way the NBA is going. You know that, right? And yeah. It's like, yeah, I, I, I got it. I got it. And he brings up stuff from the '90s, and I'm thinking, like, okay, yeah, I get it. You're not going to be running the triangle offense, but still, r- running plays through Joel is. I mean, it's it's going to be different. I kind of, I kind of wish, and maybe maybe they will at some point. They'll just embrace how how different they're going about this because, again, I don't, I don't. It might work. I don't, you know, I'm I'm skeptical, but. It's not a. It's not something I, I I'll say is is not going to work. Um, so yeah, he. Uh, what, what do you make of the idea of a Joel Embiid being the crunch time score, as he said, and, and b like I think he mentioned not shooting a lot of threes too at one point. What uh What do you make about what he said offensively? So I mean, I think it's real tough. First of all, to be a post up player. And also be the crunch time score. Like that is, it, it takes time to get into your post offense. A loss of time means a loss of options. It is tough to, you know, when the other team has their best defenders in there, when they're game planning for that, it's tough to make a living doing that late in games. Like final minute, need a bucket post up, it's tough. And it's, especially until Joel really begins reading a double team better, it's going to be real tough. So I think, you know, I think, I think that's sort of a war of attrition. Like there's just not that many options. Like if they had a better option, would they go to that more? Like you're always going to, first of all, you're always going to feed Joel in the post anyway. Like you'll, you'll never not feed him in the crunch, but you know, if they had a Jimmy Butler-esque late game score, would they go back to that? Yeah, probably, but they don't. So they have to sort of devise a way around that. Uh, I have my concerns though. Like Joel has not been great late in games. You know, final minute, final two minutes. I'd have to look at his clutch stats, which I don't really put much stock in anyway because they tend to be very low sample. But he's had a lot of struggles with his turnovers, with bad shots in those sort of environments, and I think a lot of that's because of how difficult it is to to do that in the post. So I have, I mean, that's that's goes back to the, do they have any? real shot creators in the crunch of the game. And I think that's a legitimate concern when you're talking about championship level play. In So I will say one thing, and I totally agree with everything you said about the post. Joel did say at those exit interviews, he said flat out, I can't just be a post scorer. He did. And so so, so I do think, you know, there has been a, a recognition of that from him and the team that if he is going to be that, that go-to scorer at the end of the game – it's probably not going to feature a ton of heavy post-ups. I don't know what that would be, you know, kind of maybe, you know, isolation at the, the elbow pinch post area, maybe some, some pick and pop, some pick and roll. I, I don't know exactly what it'll be, but I, I do think they, they understand his struggles late in games. In terms of shooting threes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one thing. First of all, this team has always been. Relatively high, not super high. Well, except for back in the, I feel like back in the MCW days, they were really high in shooting threes. And then like last year, they were, I want to say like 12th, maybe like 10th, somewhere right around there in, in three point frequency. 
which, you know, a lot of that comes down to, well, now your leading shot taker is Joel Embiid, and by definition, he's going to get a lot of his shots near the basket. So that's going to almost less than a change in or a devaluing of the three-point shot. It's just we have to make use of what we have, and that's a dominant post score. But now you've, you know, you've, you've lost Reddick. Yeah, Josh Richardson can shoot. Tobias can shoot. But your number one option is a post player and your number two option is a non-shooting point guard. And you also have a lot of size and mismatch opportunities. And, you know, Brett kind of clarified when you asked that question. He's like, I'm just talking about taking advantage of our size. That might be crashing the offensive glass. That might be understanding that, you know, Tobias Harris can finish over his defender because he's longer and bigger and stronger. So that might be a driver to the rim. That might be Joel Embiid posting up or facing up. So when he says bully ball, he doesn't mean straight up how how he would phrase it as pound, pound, post up. That's not necessarily what he's talking about. But he did oddly seem like he's devaluing or not emphasizing the three-point shot as much as he has been. And I don't... Does that make me concerned? Yeah, because I just don't see this team as having that many great dribble-drive shot creators either. So... They have a lot of average three-point shooters. They do. And they have a lot of average sort of ISO pick-and-roll players. I would say below average, like below the standard of when you would give that person the ball. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I wonder, I wonder where they will, you know, and, and part of this, I think, is, you know, focused on their top two. Like, you're not going to ever want Ben Simmons launching five threes a game. You're going to want to put Joel Embiid in the post. So if they're going to design an offense around there, it sort of makes sense that Brett's going to be focused on their size. But I do wonder, I wonder, I wonder exactly what that means because it did come away thinking, you know, they might shoot a lot fewer threes than we expect them to. Yeah. And my general thought is it's nice to have some athleticism on the wing, but it doesn't really matter if you can't create space and, and get to the basket. So, you know, on one hand, you look at it and say, yeah, like, like, like you just said, Joel and Ben are, are your two best players. Well, if, if they're your two best players, you don't want them shooting a ton of threes. Uh, even though I think Joe needs to get better at that and he should as well. Uh, I'm still yeah, convinced we're going to wake up one day and he's a 35% three point shooter. Yeah. He's, he just has his touch is too good. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought that was, that was an interesting, uh, admission. From, from Brett, but I, I don't really know what to make of it until we see, uh, kind of what this offense looks like in a game. Last thing I would say in terms of the real takeaways from that lunch, Tobias. He mentioned this so many What's times. The guard? It was hard. He's, he basically says Tobias comes up to him all the time randomly, like, Brett, I'm really going to guard this year. I'm, you're going to see, I'm going to be a much better defender this year. And that's funny too, because he's basically admitting, I'm sorry, I didn't guard last year. <laughs> right. Um, and Brett's whole thing is good athlete, good person. I think it's going to come around. You good people and you God. <laughs> right. <What> is- <laughs> um, that was a bad, that was a bad Brett. That kind of sounded It wasn't like, a great uh, Brett. Your Dario was much better, but we'll, we'll take it. Yeah, no, Tobias, Tobias wants to play defense. He, uh, I mean, he talked, when I talked with him at, uh, at Xfinity last month, he basically was like, yeah, we, uh, we talked about it. I'm going to be guarding a lot of threes. I'm doing a lot of uh, kind of flexibility and athleticism work in the summer to get better at that. And I believe him. You know, I think Tobias is 
a really hard worker. He has certainly improved throughout his career. Uh, like Brett said, I, he's, he's a good person. You know, I, I think he's somebody you want on your team. And even if we don't, you know, even if it was somewhat of an overpay, I would say to, to bring him in, he, uh, he is certainly somebody who you want kind of from a team culture standpoint on your team. Uh, and, and I was kind of always brought up with the idea of, well, the first thing that matters with defense is that you care that you, you actually try. And the problem is I wasn't guarding NBA players <laughs> right. and, you know, um, it, it kind of, when Tobias talked about his exercise or, uh, his, uh, you know, his working on his flexibility and doing all of those things, it kind of reminded me of Dario, his second year saying, man, I worked really hard on my athleticism, really hard. And it's like, that's great. I'm sure you can get a little more athletic, but there's a limit on that. And, uh, I'm just worried. He, he struck me as somebody who, like a little stiff to guard, to guard wings, but, uh, he is certainly, for, from the way Brett was talking, it sounds like Tobias has read kind of all the speculation that, well, you're going to be the weak link of, the, of these five guys. And we, we, we talked that if he's your weak link, it, there's a lot worse, uh, scenarios than that, but, uh, if he can even get up to around average, that would be massive because th- there would really be nowhere to go. Yeah, and look, like you said, we've brought this up before. If he's your weak link, like we expect this team to be one of the two or three best defensive teams in the league. You've got the, you know, the Sixers, the Clippers. You expect to be really good. The Jazz are always really good, but you expect them to be right up there with the elite of the elite of the elite. And part of that is because Tobias isn't a terrible defender; he's just not a particularly good one. So, you know, I, I liked your point about the effort. Like, effort is very important, but there's more to it because the people yeah. regarding aren't YMCA. There's guys level. who don't. There's guys who don't care on defense in the NBA. But oh, a hundred percent, sure. You know, yep. you know what always reminds me the of not caring. The pinnacle of not caring on defense. Spencer Hawes last game before he got traded <laughs> in Philadelphia. Yes, they played the Cavs. They got smoked, and he he. His feet were in cement the entire night. It was, it was, I think Zach Lowe called it a masterclass and not giving an <laughs> F at the end of it. It, uh, I don't know. For some reason, I just thought of that, but yeah, there are a lot of guys who don't care in the NBA, but there are a lot of guys who do who, who also have limits as well. No, and I mean, look, there's, I think Tobias cares. I, I don't think he ever completely didn't care. So I, I, I mean, that's part of the reason why I don't think he's ever been a terrible defender and he is, he is big. He's strong. He's athletic. But like you, there's also, like, I think a lot of people, they boil defense down to effort and caring. And I think that really sells short how much skill is required to be an elite defender at an NBA level. How much knowledge and how much quick reactions and quick reflexes and, and instincts are required to be, and, and I mean, preparation. Look at the preparation Andre Iguodala. Go back and read some of the stories on how he prepares for an opponent. And how much work that takes and how much, like I said, instincts and athleticism and, and, and just quick twitch stuff. You know, you, you bring up Dario. It's very rare for someone to go from a below average defender. And I think Tobias is significantly better than Dario, but it's very rare to go from a below average defender to a very good defender because there's just some things that are out of your control at this stage of your physical development. And, you know, we'll see. Like if, if Tobias, buys in fully and really makes the most of his gifts, can he improve? Yes. 
And if he improves, can this team be elite defensively? Yes. So that's really all you're hoping for. But am I expecting to see Tobias Harris on an all, all defensive team this year? No, but I am happy that, that he continues to tell Brett that he is going to be a better defender. I mean, the one I'm not telling Brett. It, and the one thing I, I will contradict myself a little bit here. It is easier to feel a level of confidence in the buy-in when JJ Redick is being replaced by Josh Richardson. Right. Yes. And, and Jimmy Butler not caring is being replaced by, by Al Horford, who, you know, I, I'm sure Al Horford will help Tobias out more than anybody. Yeah. Yep. All right. I think that's all of my primary takes from the lunch. You got anything else? No, let's do some player previews. Well, so we, I think we released three player previews this past week. All of which by you guys, because I was, I was off on vacation. Trey Burke, Howell Nato, Zaire Smith. But we've, we've sort of, I mean, we've talked pretty extensively about the backup point guards over the last few podcasts. I don't know we have to really rehash too much of that. But any, any, I guess, quick thoughts you have on that? Yeah. You know, looking at some of Trey Burke's kind of advanced numbers, I, He's even before you do that, he just has not been on many good teams. So to me, the big uh, difference for him this year is he's trying to carve out minutes, a role on a team with title aspirations when he's been on the complete opposite of of the spectrum, you know, with the Knicks. He uh, I had a stat in the Burke preview where even if he doesn't have a regular role, I could see Brett throwing him into a game when the Sixers aren't scoring because he does have the ability to kind of just fill it up in a, in a short amount of time. And the, the stat was TJ's career high is 18 points. Trey Burke has topped that 50 times. <laughs> and he's only played 47 more games. So he certainly brings a different skill set. Uh, you know, we've, we talked about. That his defense isn't very good, but I, I was also kind of interested in that with the Knicks, he, uh, the team was basically always better when he played. So I think there's some hope. Do you, I guess we don't have to go too far into this. I agree with you, but how would you handicap the backup point guard battle? Just even, even if you don't know anything, just kind of looking at when they were signed their past couple of years, how, how would you handicap it going into training camp? So if you ask me who was going to be the backup point guard when the postseason rolled around, I think NATO has a better chance of that. Like I just I think Brett is going to trust his decision making and his defense significantly more. And I think at the end of the day that will rule the day. Early in the season, I could see Brett wanting to see how to how Burke's skill set fits into a good team. Because like you said, we really haven't had a chance to see that especially over the last couple of years when he's made that jump in play. So I could see him wanting to evaluate what Burke could add to a contender and what that skill set would do for this team. So I could see Burke, and this is all speculation, I could see Burke maybe getting some run, some significant run early on in the season. And depending how that goes, then they could you know, sort of fall back to NATO, who's a little bit more dependable, a little more reliable, a little more of a known commodity. On a good team. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it also goes along with the idea that the playoffs are, are more about what is your biggest weakness as opposed to your strengths. And Neto to me strikes me as a player 
who, while he does not have Burke's ability to, I think, get hot and score at, at that, that rate that Burke has showed, uh, he has less weaknesses and he's, he's fairly average at a lot of stuff. So I, I would agree with you there. I would, I, I wonder if at the beginning of the season we see both of them and it's kind of a, you think it, it'd be like a splitting time in a game or like one game it's Burke, one game it's Neto? I was thinking more of, of the latter, but yeah. you know, I, I guess, I guess we'll see on that. I mean, it sounds, you know, if, if the, uh, like we talked about the, the center position, how they're going to rotate that, it sounds like at least to begin the season, they might be more open to playing more guys than they have in the past. Yeah. Yep. And they certainly have more playable guys. I think, I think what's really going to be interesting. The one real unknown is, and this kind of comes into one of the other player previews that were released this week in Zaire Smith and do either him or Matisse who had a rolled ankle uh, on Monday. The Sixers panic. Brett sort of accidentally dropped that during his speech. And then they came out and I, I believe they said he's on track to play next week for, uh, you know, for training camp. So that seems like there's no real concern there outside of the fact that he is a rookie on, on the Sixers. So there is some built in concern that we can't avoid. But right now it seems and, like he is on track. And I mean, a rolled ankle. That's look, if we're, uh, if we're trying to progress in terms Just of amputate the fucker right now. Yeah. That's, that's basically the only way place we can go. I mean. Look, Zaire oh. got really sick last year. It would have to be, it would have to be something pretty bad for Matisse. If, imagine, imagine if, if there's uh, like some brand new Sixers. Path. Imagine if there's some brand new Sixers fan who's never been a fan in prior season, has no idea what we're talking about. Sixers rookies and in injuries have not done well of late. Yes. TLDR. And that, which is why a report of a sprained ankle before they even begin real practice sends some people into, uh, DEFCON 5. Uh, Somehow that's, that rolled ankle will mean that he forgot how to run. I, I don't know how we'll get from A to B, but we'll, we'll find a way. Yeah. Anyway, he sounds like he's okay. So. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I, again, that, how many mailbag questions over the summer did we answer about Zaire and Matisse? Yeah, well, cause it's one of the real, for, for a team that has so much turnover, like most players you feel like you have a grasp on. The two that I would say are a little bit unknown is Trey Burke and that's mostly integrating his skill set into now a contender where he's not going to have the ball quite as much, not going to have the freedom that he, he previously had. And Zaire and Matisse because they're a rookie and they might as well be a rookie because of the allergy, allergic reaction he had last year. So it, it's, yes, we answered one or two questions about those two. Yeah. One or two. Uh, in Sixers news, Hayward Highsmith, Exhibit 10 contract. Rounds out the Sixers roster at twenty. He's not. He's not making the team. No, but they will have twenty guys for training camp, and that's uh, that's all you can have. You know, one one thing I always wish we watch our football colleagues, and they get to do these fifty-three man roster projections, and they do it like five times over the course of over the course of of camp in the preseason, and they 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 always do good numbers, and we don't really get that because there's nothing I can do to tell you to make you think that Highsmith is going to beat out. You know, Matisse Thibel in a competition for one of those 15 roster spots, but good on him. I hope he impresses and, and gets a future somewhere. Isaiah Miles, sleeper. <laughs> uh, anything else? You know, I think, I think one thing that Brett sort of alluded to, he sort of contradicted himself. And I guess we'll close on this. He said, I want the number one seed. 
And, you know, he's pretty forceful in that. And then he's like, well, but we also want to make sure that Joel's ready for, for the playoffs. We want to deliver Joel to um, April 17th, I think is the date. Which is a little bit contradictory because I would say the number one thing besides health that would determine that number one seed is does Joel Embiid play 67 games or does Joel Embiid play 77 games? And that will be a major factor in whether or not the Sixers have a better record than the Milwaukee Bucks. How much you play Al Horford will have determine whether or not you have the number one seed. So it's it'll be interesting to see how they weight that. But he did come out a little bit more forcefully in wanting that number one seed than I would have expected. Yeah, and we've seen over the past couple of years they've been generally a much better home team in the playoffs, uh, which I, I can't imagine is that much different from most teams. But, you know, when you see yourself lose in very close, uh, even game five a couple of years ago in Boston, it, that was a game where if it was at home, I imagine the Sixers would have won. And, you know, you saw kind of the, the home cooking take the Celtics over the top. And, and in that series, a couple of really close games there. And then, you know, obviously Kawhi shot in Toronto last year. It's, it's understandable. You want to play those, those big games at home. Uh, I would look at it this way. I would say if you're not going to beat Milwaukee for home court advantage, it doesn't really matter that much to me. It, if you're the, well, you I, should be able to beat Boston even without home court. Yeah. And yeah. And you should at least be able to get the three seed, right? With Joel and Al, as long as somebody doesn't get seriously injured, uh, on a, you know, a pretty conservative plan, even if it's, uh, you know, not what Kawhi did last year. The, uh, yeah, to me, the only benefit is, is beating Milwaukee because if you can't beat, you know, whoever the two seed would be that would get ahead of you, whether that's Boston or, Drawing a blank, but that, that's my point. There's not really too many other contenders, uh, because I, I couldn't really even say anybody else. Well, I mean, what, what do you go to? The Nets? Well, that, I mean, Durant's out. Yeah, then well, you got the Pacers and Oladipo the who heat? when he's going to come back. The Heat, come on. That's what I mean. I, the Pacers aren't going to be better than them either. So, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, I, but I agree with you. They are contradictory messages because if, if you go all out for the number one seed, that means Joel needs to play most of the games. And, and here, here, here's sort of where I would, I would sort of end that conversation. Yes, home court is that is important. Do I think home court was advan- uh, you know, a factor in Game Seven against the Raptors? Absolutely, of course it was. But a bigger factor is Joel Embiid. And if Joel Embiid was playing like Joel Embiid for the first six games, there wouldn't have been a Game Seven last year, and home court wouldn't have come into play. So I do think Joel Embiid being healthy and quote unquote delivered to April seventeenth is the number one concern, and then the number one seed is the number two concern. All right, I think that's probably a good place to cut it off. We're approaching an hour here. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.